Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Australia, the land down under and my home. Australia is one of the most successful economies in the world with a very high standard of living for almost everyone that calls it home. Its citizens frequently top lists ranking the wealthiest average households in the world, going back and forth against Switzerland, who currently holds the top spot. But it has achieved all of this while avoiding any type of serious recession for three decades. It's because of this that it has earned the nickname the lucky country, which sounds fitting because we are lucky in a lot of ways. We are lucky to have a very large and abundant landmass with no bordering neighbours and we share that land amongst a very small population. There are even some other intangibles, like having adopted a robust democratic framework from the UK back when we were nothing more than a wee tribe of convicts. But what a lot of people don't realise is that the lucky country nickname is kind of an insult levelled against us by economists. Australia isn't lucky like you made amazing investments into all of the right industries and now you are set for life, you're so lucky. It's lucky like, oh, you decided to wear a suit made of steaks, wrestle a croc and you only lost one finger in the process, you're so lucky. You see, a lot of Australia's success has been predicated on industries that have been less than totally stable in a lot of other countries around the world. What's more is that the country looks to be making the same mistakes as all of these other cautionary tales, but for some bloody reason, we keep on getting away with it. So what is going on here? Is there something inherently different about the way Australia manages its economy that makes it so resilient? What are the problems the country could face if this luck ever does run out? And is Australia actually an advanced economy? As always, once we have looked at all of this, we can put Australia on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard, which by popular demand will now be done back on the main channel. Alright, so first things first, I gotta say that ragging on your own country and how it's run is as much an Australian tradition as backyard cricket and Tim Tam slams. I don't intend to be overly negative here, because, I mean, lucky or not, the performance speaks for itself. Australia is obviously doing most things right, but... If you love something, you want to make sure it doesn't hurt itself. So here goes. Is Australia an advanced economy? I'm sure almost all of you watching would say, yes, of course it is. But what is an advanced economy? I have said it hundreds of times on this channel before and countless times while teaching and studying economics before that, and I have to admit that I personally never stopped to think about what this broad classification actually meant, beyond just being a rich country. Well, it turns out that almost everyone has done the same thing, because there is no established numerical standard that defines something as a developed, developing, or undeveloped country. The term is loosely used by the International Monetary Fund to describe countries that have all of the following factors. A high level of per capita income, an extremely high level of industry, 
a varied export base and a financial system that is integrated broadly with the wider global economy. Now, there are a few things here that we can easily tick off for Australia. A very high level of per capita income? Yeah, for sure, it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world. A well-integrated financial system? Yeah, again, Australia's currency and banking system is very widely respected. Despite being the 13th largest economy in the world, it has the 7th most widely held currency. Its ongoing stability is also well established, whether it be down to luck or not. Looking pretty good so far, until we get to exports. This is what Australia's exports look like. Almost two-thirds is made up of resources and another 18% is comprised of education and tourism. A quick side note here is that if you're not sure how tourism and education count as exports, just remember that exports track the direction of money flow, not the number of containers being loaded onto ships. If tourists or foreign students spend money sightseeing or getting an education, they are sending money from their country to Australia in exchange for goods and services, so it's counted as an export, and a really good export at that. Someone taking a selfie in front of the Opera House doesn't use up the Opera House. Likewise, Australia doesn't have a set amount of university degrees to give out. This means that they are endlessly renewable and can continue to contribute to the balance of trade for so long as they are still in demand, which they were up until about 18 months ago. The fallout of the coronavirus has all but eliminated these two crucial export categories. This came on top of existing issues facing education in Australia that had become a little bit too accustomed to foreign dollars. Numerous scathing reports targeted a selection of Australian universities for basically giving out degrees to foreign students who may not have even been able to proficiently speak the language the degree was being taught in. This greed in attracting exchange student dollars is by no means exclusive to Australia, but it was very prevalent here, and it was starting to genuinely hurt our perception in the global community as a very prestigious place to receive an education. So maybe these export categories weren't endlessly renewable after all. All of that is, pardon the pun, academic at this point anyway, because no international travel means no tourists and no exchange students, which means all that is really left is exporting natural resources and cows. Now think of it like this. Imagine a country whose exports are almost entirely made up of raw materials and livestock. You're probably imagining a developing country at best, but more realistically, you're thinking of an undeveloped country. A country that lacks the skills and infrastructure to provide anything beyond the rocks that they can dig up out of the ground and the food that they would have grown for thousands of years. So, when it comes to diversity of exports, uh, Australia might not necessarily make the cut here, at least not until these other export categories become possible again. And even then, it's certainly not what you would call a well-diversified export base. Now this has very important implications beyond just missing out on being in the special club of advanced economies. An over-reliance on one export class can make your currency very volatile in international markets. This is a chart of global iron ore prices in US dollars and this is a chart of Australian dollars as compared to those same US dollars. Notice any similarities? This does a few things. The first is that it increases foreign exchange risk for Australian companies doing business abroad and foreign investors that want to invest into Australia. If you are an Australian company, you do business in Australian dollars. If you set up operations overseas, you might invest 10 million Australian dollars into establishing a factory or some storefronts or whatever. Let's say your venture is very successful and eventually ends up being acquired for 15 million American dollars. Sounds great, right? Ah, but unfortunately, the price of iron ore, and subsequently the Australian dollar, has doubled in that time, meaning that you only get back $7.5 million, turning this otherwise fantastic deal into a massive expense. 
The same goes in reverse for foreign investors that want to put money into Australia, which means it has been difficult to attract the kind of tech investment ecosystem that has served places like Silicon Valley so well. In fact, some of our largest and most innovative tech companies end up establishing operations in the US for exactly this reason, which is a real shame because Australia genuinely does have the potential to be a fantastic centre of innovation. Despite its relatively small population, Australia has made some huge contributions to technology in the form of everything from hearing implants to world-class battery storage. The problem is, we have failed to hold on to any of these innovations. We have a long and sad history of pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into world-changing innovations, only for those developments to be profited on by a company in a country who is easy to get investor dollars in. This means that instead of producing goods that have had a significant value added to them through technological know-how and advanced machinery, our industrial sector is almost non-existent and is shrinking more every year. But something still sounds off with this, because Australia has one of the highest levels of foreign direct investment in the world, especially when compared to the relatively small population. The problem is that these overseas investors are not necessarily investing in the right things. Foreign direct investment is where companies and individuals from foreign countries will invest in a nation directly by buying up businesses, real estate, pieces of equipment or even intellectual properties that they will directly control. If a foreign investor bought a factory and decided that they wanted that factory to do nothing but make rubber ducks, they would have the right to do that. If a foreign investor bought an apartment in a major city and they decided that they wanted to leave it empty, they would also be able to do that. This is distinct from just regular foreign investment, sometimes called foreign portfolio investment, which is where foreign investors will buy up things like a non-majority group of shares in a company. In this instance, they don't have the same level of control over the underlying asset as they would by owning the majority stake or the entirety of the asset. Foreign direct investment, therefore, gives people a bit of an uneasy feeling, especially when those investments are being made in a country's most valuable industries. There have been some very high-profile examples, such as the acquisition of a vital trade port in Darwin by a Chinese corporation, which have made for countless headlines. And yeah, this is not great. But realistically, the bigger problem is actually the overall trend. Just for the record, and despite what most people might think, it's worth noting that China is far from the largest investor in Australia. Foreign investment primarily comes from the UK and the US, and there is a really good reason for this. So remember that for a little bit later. But for now, it doesn't really matter too much where this money comes from. It still causes the same issues. A whopping $360 billion, or 35% of all foreign investments made in 2020, were made into the mining industry, which, as we have seen, is a crucial part of Australia's export economy. What's more is that these are ultimately finite resources. The more that foreign investors profit off these mines, the less that will be available to the benefit of the people of the nation, like say what was done in Norway with their sovereign wealth fund. We actually explored this issue in a video I did on the Australian economy way back in 2019. It was actually one of the very first videos on the channel. In that, we found that while mining made up a very large portion of Australia's exports and attracted a healthy share of foreign investment, it didn't really contribute too much to the domestic economy. To explain why, we need to talk about taxes. Australia has some of the highest taxes in the world. While our top marginal tax rate of 45% is not crazy by any means, it's applied very early. 
Australians start paying the top marginal tax rate on every dollar they earn over $180,000 per year. This is obviously still a lot of money, but it's only the equivalent of about $130,000 US dollars. Countries like Germany have the same top marginal tax rate, but that doesn't apply until someone earns €275,000 or the equivalent of $320,000 US dollars. A German has to earn two and a half times as much before they start paying that top marginal tax rate. Now, don't feel too bad for us Australians just yet, because the way we have got around this is one of the biggest reasons we are home to the second wealthiest group of people in the world. There is a tax strategy in Australia called negative gearing. What this means is that if you own a property that earns less money in rent than it costs to maintain in mortgage repayments and upkeep, you get to count the loss against your income. Doesn't sound too amazing on the surface. Lose money just so you don't need to pay tax? Surely you'd be 55% better off just paying the 45% tax rate, right? Well, not necessarily, for two major reasons. The first is a little accounting trick called non-cash deductions. Basically, expenses that are incurred but not paid for in cash. Put another way, depreciation. If you buy a house for $2 million here in Sydney, that value might be made up of $1 million worth of land and $1 million in the actual structure of the home. Land doesn't depreciate but the house sitting on top of it does. If you pencil in that the house should last 20 years before needing to be rebuilt, you can expense $50,000 a year in depreciation. So let's have a look at how that might play out. Let's say a senior professional is making $250,000 per year and has two investment properties like the one we saw earlier. They get $100,000 a year in rent from these two properties, which actually bumps their annual income up to $350,000 per year. But then come the deductions. These properties cost about $20,000 per year in general maintenance, another $20,000 in land taxes, and let's say the interest on the loans for these properties is $60,000 per year. Now our investors' income is back down to just the $250,000 per year that they made from their job. We can keep on going. Now we count $50,000 in depreciation from each property, and suddenly our investors' taxable income is only $150,000 per year. So there are really three different numbers here. Their taxable income, their pocketed income, and the annual increase in their net worth. Their taxable income is $150,000, and their take-home income will be $250,000. Remember, depreciation is just a bit of accounting trickery, it doesn't actually cost them $50,000 per year out of their pocket. Chances are those houses will probably be around a lot longer than 20 years as well. Now, as for the increase in their net worth, well, Property in Sydney, and most of Australia's capital cities, has been on a bit of a winning streak in recent decades, averaging around 7% per year in capital growth. That would give our investors an extra $280,000 per year in average unrealised capital gains, bringing their total increase in net worth up to $530,000 per year, while only being taxed on $150,000. Put another way, if someone wanted to make as much money after tax from just working a regular job in Australia, they would need to be paid nearly a million dollars a year. Now, those of you thinking, oh, but they'll have to sell their properties to actually access any of the money that they made from capital gains, right? Well, that's not entirely true. Once our investors wait for their properties to increase in value enough, they can just get a cash-out mortgage to give them an injection of cash if they need it. If they don't need it, they can still get a cash-out mortgage and just use the extra cash as a deposit on yet another investment property. The tax system in Australia is set up to favour property investments so heavily that it's basically dumb not to be an investor if you have a high income. 
I myself have spoken openly about not being a huge fan of real estate investing, but in the interest of transparency, I'll say that I have property investments because it's just so hard not to without making your accountant very angry. This unfortunately makes property very unaffordable to regular workers, especially young professionals working in major cities on comparatively modest salaries. It does, however, attract a lot of the foreign investors we saw earlier, especially Chinese buyers who are looking for a safer, secure place to park their cash where they can actually own properties indefinitely rather than just leasing them from the government for 70 years. Now, this trend is slowing, especially in light of the coronavirus, but once a lot of these properties are purchased, they will never be sold again, at least not for a really, really long time, further diminishing the supply that regular old Australians might have to fight over. So there you have it. A country that made itself very wealthy by digging up dirt to sell overseas and giving its citizens tax breaks for buying up more patches of dirt here at home. So far it looks to have made every mistake in the book, every wrong turn from every country that relied too heavily on natural resources or encouraged too much pressure to be put on real estate markets. But yep, here it is, seemingly unaffected by it all. The lucky country indeed. But for my own sake, I really do hope that this luck does not run out. Alright, let's put Australia on the Economics Explained national leaderboard. Starting as always with GDP. Australia is the 13th largest economy in the world with a GDP of $1.3 trillion. This is in line with all but the true superpowers of the world and it gets an 8 out of 10. GDP per capita is also very high. $62,000 per capita is again in line with places like Singapore and Sweden. It gets an 8 out of 10. Which might sound low, but remember, the US has a GDP per capita of $68,000, and there are some extreme examples like Luxembourg with six-figure GDPs per capita. So we gotta leave some room for them. Next up, stability and confidence. Now, I know we've just spent an entire video talking about how we're all doomed, but be it through luck or good governance or divine intervention, Australia has managed to glide through countless global economic meltdowns seemingly unscathed. It would be doing history a disservice to give it anything but a 10 out of 10 for now. Australia's growth has been pretty stagnant over the last decade, primarily thanks to a sustained decline in the value of iron ore and subsequently a sustained decline in its domestic currency. When measured in Australian dollars, growth has been alright, but for consistency's sake we measure all countries in US dollars, so it gets a 3 out of 10. Finally, industry. And I'm sorry, but this one is gonna hurt. The country has lost practically all of its domestic manufacturing, and even its homegrown companies tend to abandon ship once they reach a certain size. One redeeming trait is that it does genuinely drive some incredible advances in mining technology, but as we've seen, natural resources alone do not make for a great economy or a great industrial sector for that matter, Australia gets a 4 out of 10. Altogether, this gives the nation an average score of 6.6 out of 10, putting it here on the leaderboard. Let me know if you agree with these scores, I look forward to hearing your opinions. Let's let the takeaway be that Australia has done a few things well, and ridden that success for longer than it probably should have been able to. But at least for now, I know better than to bet against the lucky country.